And uh, I ran that for about five years, uh, raised some money with some really great people who were friends, some of which still are friends. Uh, and then I bankrupted that company um, because I spent all of the money. And Alex, as a CEO, you know, you're not allowed to spend all of the money. You have to have some. <laughs> have to keep some of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't follow that one, that one rule of keeping a business open. Uh, and so I got to go through the wonderful process of liquidating all of the assets and uh, filing bankruptcy. Hi, and welcome to The Struggle, a production of the SaaS Revolution show and brought to you by SaaS Talk. I'm Irina Jambazova, head of content. On this month's episode of The Struggle, Alex Thuma speaks with Liam Booger Azule, head of marketing at Matt Kudu, a predictive lead scoring solution for SaaS companies. Liam has had somewhat of an unusual path, both professionally and personally. When everyone was moving to Silicon Valley, he moved away from it, landing in Paris. While most people would hone their skills in a particular area first and then dare to start their own company, Liam's first job was starting Root Baguette, a blog devoted to startups. He had started it almost as soon as he moved to Paris. Root Baguette would end up being France's startup publication that employed 10 people. That is, until Liam brought it to bankruptcy. A slow one, as you hear him describe in this interview but a bankruptcy nevertheless. The experience was priceless and Liam figured out that he had enjoyed building the brand far more than being a CEO. In retrospect, he knows exactly what went wrong, but at the time, some of his flaws were hidden. They caused mistakes, which he would repeat at Algolia, a company he joined 11 weeks after filing for bankruptcy. Liam would leave Algolia a year and a half later, in almost as dramatic a fashion as folding root baguette. His time there was marked by some incredible feats, like a full rebrand, but also some pretty big mistakes, deriving from often not knowing what to do, but never admitting to it, never asking for help, as his innate need to always portray he knew the answer got in the way. By the time he started with Matt Kudu, Liam knew there were major gaps he needed help with, or he would fail again. He asked for an executive coach, and a Matt Kudu founder said yes. As with all other guests on The Struggle, we have absolute respect for Liam, for his openness, his honesty, and the willingness to learn and to share his shortcomings so others can learn from them too. As you hear in the interview, Liam met Matt Kudu's founder, Francis, at SaaS Talk. In fact, for a long time, Liam used to think SaaS Talk was called SaaS Talk because of all the invaluable conversations that take place during our conference for founders, executives, and investors. If you want to partake in the networking, the life-changing conversations, and build lasting relationships, do join us in Dublin this October for SaaS Talk 19. Now on with the show. Welcome to the latest episode of The Struggle, uh, Liam Bogar-Azoulay. Welcome, Liam. Thanks for having me, Alex. No, it's good to have you on the show. Uh, you haven't been a Bogar-Azoulay for long, have you? No, I haven't. Um, I was I was a Bogar for most of my life, and then I married an Azoulay, and uh, now I'm a Bogar-Azoulay. <laughs> okay, very good. And you just come back from your honeymoon in Hawaii. We were just talking about I that. I did. 
Yeah, yeah. We just spent uh, 10 days out in Big Island, like hiking across volcanoes and uh, getting tattoos. Uh huh. Okay. So is it literally called Big Island? And where are the tattoos? Um, it is literally called Big Island. You can also call it Hawaii. It's also where Kona Coffee comes from. There's a couple names for the, for the island. Um, but originally it's called Hawaii, but since the Hawaii is now multiple islands. Anyway, um, our tattoos are, I'd say like my left pelvis area. I I had one previously on my thigh, on my left thigh. So we kind of started going up. So I'd say it's borderline tushy, but not quite. Are you allowed to, are they private? Uh, What is the tattoo of? Is it a Sastock logo? No, man. I, I remember, I remember when you got that, I thought, man, I'm really glad I didn't get the logo of my first company. That would have been, <laughs> that's, a, that's a commitment, but maybe that's also why my first one didn't work out. No, um, i we've kind of have this mutual, this like joint project, which is basically every couple of years when we feel like we're at like a turning point in our lives, we find a tattoo artist that we really like in a location that we want to travel to. And we basically say, here's where I'm at in my life. Draw whatever that means for you. Um, with the idea that it's a continued piece of work for me, it's on my leg for Olivia. She's got one on uh, her right rib and one on her left flank. Um, and so we, it's kind of just where I'm at in my life. I can tell you, for example, that, um, uh, we are, our second, it's our second tattoo and they, they have a part that's matching and one of, and part of it is a compass, uh, in like a Hawaiian tribal, uh, symbol. Um, and that's more about us, you know, figuring out the next step forward. We're kind of coming off just getting married, uh, changing jobs a year ago, uh, a lot of stuff going on in our lives. So there's a big compass about, you know, us like finding direction uh, with, with each other. And so, yeah, it's, it's personal, but it's also kind of just like a snapshot. Um, it's kind of like an Instagram account, but tattooed onto my skin. Awesome. No, I, I like it. I mean, whilst this is not a podcast about tattoos, we will be talking about, uh, you know, building, growing businesses, working at SaaS companies. My first tattoo, I also picked a place where, or first of all, a tattoo artist that I really wanted that happened to be in Toulouse. So I had to travel there, had to wait one year, uh, had to travel there, get it done over a weekend when it should have done been four sittings. That was great. And then the second tattoo, I was like, shit, the conference is next week. Where is the, where's the nearest tattoo parlor? That's half decent. And I, and I got one which was 20 minutes down the road. And uh, yeah. that, that was the story of the Sastock tattoo. But uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I like that one yeah the first one the first one's in super meaningful like it's you overthink it and then it's done and then like a week later like i wait i overthought that way too much like this is just one thing like i i bear i only see mine when i'm in the shower just because the nature of where it is it's above my kneecap on my legs so and i don't look great in shorts so you very rarely see it um and i very rarely see it but uh but I, every time i see it I, I get really excited about it like so so aside from tattoos and from getting married recently and being to Hawaii, like tell us a little bit about more, uh, more about yourself. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up, uh, in the Bay area and I moved out to Paris, France when I finished college, um, and kind of fell, uh, I like to say ass backwards into the Paris startup scene. Um, I, I got an internship working at a startup company and then I started writing a blog about the fact that there were even startups based in Paris, which for me was a shock. Um, and uh, that kind of dovetailed into this um, blog called Rude Baguette um, that turned into uh, uh, France's startup blog. And that was how I started my career um, is basically I, I, I wanted to meet as many people as possible and learn as much. I realized really quickly that start, like I was in the right space. I really wanted to be 
a founder and I really wanted to build something and I loved the people that were building it. And so that ultimately turned into about a 10-person company organizing, uh, among other things, conferences. Um, so we organized the biggest job fair, the biggest founders event, the biggest hardware conference uh, in Paris, France, or Europe, respectively, at the time. Um, and uh, I ran that for about five years, uh, raised some money with some really great people who, uh, who were friends, some of which still are friends. Uh, and then I bankrupted that company. Um, because I spent all of the money and Alex as a CEO, you know, you're not allowed to spend all of the money. You have to have some, have to keep some of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't follow that one, that one rule of keeping a business open. Uh, and so I got to go through the wonderful process of liquidating all of the assets and, uh, filing bankruptcy. Uh, and, and when I came out of that, I really, um, enjoyed the process of building a brand and, and I, and I liked being a CEO. I loved being a CEO. I don't think, I think most people would agree that they like the idea of being your own boss. Mm. But what I found that I really was good at was I built this brand from nothing just out of sheer will of wanting it to exist. And it, it got to a point where even today, you know, multiple jobs later, arguably better jobs with more visibility, most people still know me as the root baguette guy, which I love because it, it's, it's a testament to this thing that I built that didn't exist before I came up with the name and, and continues to exist despite the fact that it hasn't really published anything in three years. You were like, how old were you when you started uh, Root Baguette? 21, 22. When you ran out of money, you were still like 25, 24, 25, something like that? Yeah, so that was 2016, so 26, 20, oh, my, I had my 27th birthday in our office. Like, th- that was the day um, I got the call from our last lifeline for extra funding saying, no, we're going to pass. And I remember my response I was sitting in the in the Marais in Paris, and my response was, "That's probably a good decision." <laughs> and, and that and that was pretty much when I knew it was over. And I had a few other people who had committed checks, so I called them up and I said, "Don't give me the money. Like it's a really bad idea. Like I'm just going to close this thing down." Um, do, do Do you think like age, lack of experience, or anything like that was that any contributing factors oh, to yeah. spending all the money? Like a bit of like, immaturity around being a CEO, or yeah, that nothing to do I mean, with that? I did a very bad job at surrounding myself with people that would make me better. Um, and that was kind of something that, that that's something that I've really focused on since then um, is if, if I look at it as like a toolkit for how to be a good CEO. And, and, and when I, now that I've been able to work for CEOs that, have, that are uh, much better equipped than I was, you, like the things that always stand out is they surround themselves with people who are the exact right people for the problems they're currently going through. And I did, I went through the motions. I got prominent angel investors in the Paris startup scene to give me money, but I didn't go through the motion of working them into my uh, daily routine, reaching out to them, uh, uh, you know, asking for help when I needed it, things like that. And so I, on the one hand, yeah, immaturity, uh, definitely. We weren't actually financially irresponsible. We, we died very slowly in, in, uh, in all honesty. Um, but I think fundamentally not having people around to, to let me know when, like when I didn't have a plan forward, how to, how to bounce around from that definitely made it, uh, difficult. Um, but it was a really fun time and it was really insane that a bunch of people gave me money to run a blog. And then then you, how, how, how much time did you take off after that before you, you had your next move, which was at Algolia, right? Yeah. Um, so it's funny between almost between that job and after Algolia, uh, it took me uh, 11 weeks on the dot, um, which I described as two weeks too long. 
Um, so yeah, so I, I filed for bankruptcy maybe mid June, um, uh, with like the final paper I went to, I, fi- I finally went to court and then people officially were not m- my employees anymore and I didn't have a company anymore. Um, and, uh, I went to New York and just went to Coney Island and like just disappeared for a while, went to California, uh, came back, took a train and I went to Rotterdam of all places. Um, I just thought what's the least well-known Dutch city and, and went there for some reason. Um, and then I came back and I, um, I, during that time I had started having conversations with some really great people. Um, and, and I realized that what I liked, I, I realized that this thing of building a brand is an actual job and you can do it for companies that know how to make money. So I thought I want to go to a company that knows how to make money and I want to work on building their brand. It won't be my brand, but if it's a brand I love, I think I can, I think I can make an impact. And, um, on two ends of the spectrum, I basically talked with two companies. One of them, a company I still love today, City Mapper. Um, I had known the founder, Asmat, from way back when I was a journalist in the scene. And I really loved City Mapper in Paris. And I loved the obsession over the product and the, and the, and the community and the voice. And then, I, and then one of my investors, who was also a really good friend of mine, was uh, Nicolas from uh, Design, the CEO of, uh, and founder of Algolia. Um, and I, initially, I had just gotten lunch with Nicola. And I said, like, uh, you know, this is what I'm planning to do. I'm talking with, you know, City Mapper, and he said, why don't you come do it for us? Uh, and I basically went through the motions of, of of interviewing, not really believing that it made sense for me to work at Algolia. I thought developer tool. I'm not a developer; it doesn't make sense. And then somehow ended up making it through each step and um, and joining the company. But yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much wrote my once again. I wrote my own job description on that. They, I think they were looking for. Uh, an editor, like a managing editor for their blog. And I kind of came in and said, content's great, but it doesn't work unless the voice of the content is the same as the experience you have at the events is the same as this experience you have on the website and, and basically fell into brand, brand marketing. Um, once again, once again, asked backwards, I didn't know it was a thing and that there were professionals that have been doing it for over a hundred years. I kind of just said like, I think I want to do this thing. And then people were like, Oh, you should read this book about exactly what you're talking about. So I kind (laughs) of started learning all the stuff I'd been practicing for the past five years. I think, I think I remember that bumped into you at Slush just after you started at Algolia and you, uh, uh, you were repping them there and uh, also, also due to give a keynote of either about sort of API or developers or, or whatever and then you were like, okay, like I'm, I'm pretty new to this subject but I'm about to give a keynote to thousands of people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was fun. I actually, yeah, we, I had written, um, we had a guy in, um, who still works at Algolia <laughs> who was really smart about uh, voice and also about chatbots at the time, really just the conversational um, search uh, element and conversational AI. He was really interested. And so we wrote this keynote for him to give. uh, And then some, for some reason or another, he couldn't be the speaker. And so slush came back and was like, this is great. And I was like, Oh, and they're like, so can you give us the speaker details? And I'm like, it'll be me. And it was like end of November. And so I was like, okay, I got to like, hammer in and i just like i read up so much about the chatbot space like everything that alexa and google and and microsoft were doing but also all the little side projects and academic research papers and then i like went on stage and gave this like it was a it was a 15 minute talk and i remember i finished it in 11 minutes because i was i was talking so fast because i was like if i stop talking for a second they're gonna know i have no idea what i'm talking about (laughs) 
well, whilst um, so you, you were a year and a half at Algodia uh, uh, as their brand director, which is a role that you created and kind of, I guess, like learning a little bit on the job, but you did have that experience from, um, you, you know, the creation of, of Root Baguette. Uh, and I think you've also, you've openly shared about, um, you, you know, there were up, ups and downs whilst you were at Algolia. Um, I think, like, when you came in, um, you know, perhaps, uh, if, if I'm correct, I sort of re- remember sort of reading a post about maybe, like, not all the team members necessarily sort of, like, clicked or, like, uh, you, you know, uh, got on with you. Uh, um, and, yeah, I think, like, throughout there was some ups and downs with regarding to your, you know, the vulnerability that you kind of express and, and need to have like all the answers. Can you give us a bit more insights into your time uh, at Algolia? Um, yeah. What you, what you learned from that? That ultimately is, has been something that I've been coming to terms with uh, a, a lot over the year. I remember like my first day joining Algolia and I don't remember who took me aside, but it was someone that I'd already knew, known from the company and I had gotten the job and basically, and someone basically said, Hey, like, we're really happy to have you here. Just so you know, a lot of people think you're a dick. Um, so, uh, um, you, should, you should, you should work on, on them not thinking you're a dick. And, I, and then, it, and then it was, yeah, welcome to the team. And I was like, and that wasn't how they said it. In all fairness, I, you know, that's very much paraphrasing and, and there was no negative sentiment there, but it was very much I walked in and, and there was a combination of two things. One, I, I had this blog called The Rude Baguette and it wasn't called The Rude Baguette because I was inherently a polite person. Um, but I also played up on the rude element and kind of picked fights a lot uh, in my early 20s because that's what you do on the internet. And when I came to Algolia, I think a lot of people knew me as that person and I was just figuring out that I wasn't that person anymore. Like I had been that person up until June and I walked in the door in August. I, I kind of struggled one to adapt from being a founder to employee, but honestly, of all of the things that have been that, that were difficult, that one was the least difficult uh, because I really trusted the founders and I trusted the people who were running the company, which makes it really easy. I just said, okay, if they say that's how it is, it's how it is. Like I have this thing that I'm controlling, and I'm going to be a founder of the brand, right? Like I'm going to focus on on what I can get done. But I think where I really struggled is not uh, the same thing that led me down the the like the the rabbit hole of of not having a good feedback loop when I was a founder was I, I didn't really know what was expected in terms of saying like I don't know what I'm doing somebody help me or hey we hired you so your the job is the goal is for you to have the answers to our questions and in a startup there's a like that those are the only two scenarios that that exist like there are like you're constantly confronted with things that no one in the company has ever done. And it falls on you because you're the closest person to that, or it's in your, it's in your general wheelhouse, even if you've never done it before. And there's also a, a requirement to be able to say, I'm willing to handle this, but I just want to be known. I don't know what I'm doing and I could really use some help. And not only do I not know what I'm doing, but I don't even know who to, like, I don't even know how to figure out how to do it correctly. Right. Like that's how far away I am from solving this problem. Uh, and I think at Algolia, there was a, there, there was so much moving so fast. Like, I came in and the company was 50 people, uh, very well funded in the, in the series A round, uh, very much on the road to being well funded in the series B round, which happened while I was there. And I, I felt a lot of pressure to create this level of success in the marketing team that I saw in the other departments. And I didn't necessarily have the, the leadership qualities or even the expertise to know how to get us over the line there. And so I think most of my time at Algolia can be defined as like, me like very well-intentioned mistakes 
like very much wanting to bring the company to the next level and, and not, uh, not necessarily doing the right things, like being very passionate, uh, but not necessarily in the right direction. Um, and yeah, you, you, you achieved some great things, including a great rebrand of, uh, of Algolia during, during your time. How did it come to an end? Because obviously now you're, you're no longer working with Algolia, but you're at, uh, at Magkudu. Yeah, I mean, so we did a lot of great things at Algolia. Um, so we were going up market, so they wanted a, a brand that was less developer tool, more developer platform. Um, um, we did. Uh, we we got to run. A, we got to redesign a billboard that we had in San Francisco. Uh, we got. We rolled out a con, you know content communication, field marketing, product marketing, developer relations strategy uh, that didn't exist when we got there. Um, and I, I think a lot of things happened. One. I didn't have a, a VP marketing or a CMO above me. So it was me reporting to the CEO. And there was always an effort to try to recruit that person. Uh, and, and while that person wasn't there, there was an, I, I was kind of the, the, the like highest, the highest person in the marketing team, but not the leader, so to speak. Right. Like I was a director. I don't think there were any other directors, maybe one or two towards the end that I, that I hired to join me or that I, that the marketing team had hired. But there was kind of this middle ground that, that made it very difficult. Um, and I think that created a lot of tension. I think internally, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We, Algolia and also we, the marketing team. And, and we saw things happening that we weren't happy with, but we didn't necessarily know what the solution was. Um, so like really concrete example, like we would make decisions to change the pricing. Um, and I'd raise my hand and say, okay, what's our, like, how are we going to explain this to developers? Because like they might ask us questions when this changes. And, and the response would be, uh, well, no, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to do PR around this. So, uh, we don't need to have a communication strategy. I'd say, okay. And I'd step back. And then two weeks before the, you know, the rollout of the new pricing strategy, a hand would come up and say, Hey, remember how you said you wanted to have a communication strategy? Tell us what it is. And I was like, okay, that's not exactly how I wanted it to go. But, and so I, I think, um, my inability to figure out a way to make the marketing team an asset to the company in those situations made me more of a liability than, than an advantage in the company. Um, and also at the same time, like things bigger than myself, uh, were changing inside the company. We we're bringing in a new CMO, uh, a lot of, a lot of the marketing, uh, changed from the top down and I happened to be on the top. You left Algolia and joined Makudu, who I believe that, um, you met at Sastop. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, about, uh, four months into me working at Algolia, um, our marketing ops person brought Mad Kudu into Algolia. So Algolia became a Mad Kudu customer and, and I discovered the product as a customer. Uh, and then later that year we were sponsoring, um, uh, SAS talk and we were at the like after party in our corner, kind of just trying to nurse a hangover with another beer after a couple of days of SAS talk. And this guy walks up with a backpack and a Mad Kudu t-shirt. He says, hi, I'm Francis. I, I work at Mad Kudu. And like the whole marketing team was there. So they're like, oh yeah, Mad Kudu, we know you. And we had this great night with him. And uh, after that, I, I basically stayed in touch with them. And on one of my trips out to San Francisco for Algolia, I got breakfast with the team. And I basically said, look, like, I really love what you guys are doing. Um, I, at the time, I, I was on the way out uh, of Algolia, but I wasn't gone yet. And I said, I'd really like, I'm going to be going to do something next soon. But as you guys start to build, like, let me know. I'd, I'd love to help tell this story. I think it's I think it's a really great product and I still do. Uh, and that, that dovetailed really nicely into me being marketing employee number one at Bad Kudu and employee number three or four uh, at the time. Stepping aside from that, I remember we were either on Twitter or on email. You were saying to me that the name Sastock, you thought it was Sastalk. 
and it and it, and it, and it, it sounds like you, you you're still calling us sass talk uh, but it's, it, 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 always, it, always. <laughs> I know now. I know it's Woodstock now. Yeah. I know it's Woodstock. But every time Woodstock I think about it, I'm like, why is I'm I, I still put an LK at the end of it instead <laughs> yeah. of the CK? Yeah, it's all right. Um, and 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 you you also um, during your time, like you, you seem obviously like a vulnerable a guy that's not um, afraid to kind of expose a, a vulnerable side, right? Uh, yeah. And you, you, you've you've shown that during your root baguette times, like during and after. You've shown that, uh, you know, after sort of Algolia, and I think even during. And similarly, like with Mad Kudu, recently you wrote a blog post, and we can link to kind of like all, all of these. You were just admitting that there are gaps that you, you have uh, in your journey to becoming a leader. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote the blog post, how the conversation went with the guys at Mad Kudu, and how that led to you getting an exec coach. Yeah. On the topic of vulnerability, I've been aware for some time that I don't always come across as very well in first impressions. In certain situations, I am. Like, if I'm organizing an event, if I'm the host, it's very much my domain. People generally have a good impression of me, I think. Now that I say it out loud, I'm I'm sure that's false. And part of the way that I... And and a, a lot of the reason that I don't necessarily come off well is I think people have trouble trusting me. I don't necessarily, people seem to, at least the way I've heard it from other people, people doubt my intentions pretty often. And the way I've tried to cope with that and, and, and respond to it and anticipate it is by being as vulnerable as possible. Because in my head, like if I put everything on the table, you, then you don't need to doubt my intentions because I can even just tell you my intentions, even if they're bad. And it's better that I tell you mildly bad intentions that, that you conceive in your mind uh, and imagine some infinitely worse uh, intention. And so um, going into Mad Kudu, I said, look, I'm coming out of this experience with Algolia. A lot of things went really great, you know, like operationally and as a worker, they went really well. But as a, in terms of relationships with people, here are some areas that I felt like I fell short. Uh, I feel like I need an executive coach. And I have no idea what that person would do for me. And I have no idea how to find them. And that was how the conversation started. Um, and, you know, God bless Mad Guru. The response was great. Let's help you find one of those. Um, and, and that was, a, you know, and, and I think what I really enjoy um, about Mad Kudu is the way it rewards uh, vulnerability. Just this idea that if you put everything out there, you, nothing bad happens. And I think you know, the way, like the path to creating a team that really trusts them, each other is through vulnerability. I express vulnerability by telling you, hey, I got let go of a company that was growing really quickly from a position I really would have liked to keep. And you respond by not making fun of me. And that creates trust between you and I. And as a company, that's what I've really enjoyed about um, uh, Mad Kudu. And so when I joined, uh, I, I told them that I needed an executive coach. And I've now had one for the last year and a half. And honestly, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Um, it really, the first six months of that time was really replaying my experience at Algolia and saying, look, I don't manage a team anymore. I don't have 150 people. I don't have these complex organogram issues, but I know they're going to come up at some point and I want to understand what I did wrong. And I want to see how on a micro level I can build better habits before I need them. Um, and most of my, you know, first six months was diagnosing a lot of the bad habits that I had. And understanding the root cause and then building new triggers to, to change how I react in certain situations. Um, and so in one of them being this, this uh, feeling that it's not okay not to know what's going on. 
I used to walk into meetings and even at the beginning of Madkudu, I'd walk into a meeting, realize that I was unprepared for it and, and start talking immediately because I thought, well, if I don't talk, then they'll know that I'm not ready for this meeting. When the reality is one, it's a, sometimes your role is not to know everything and you're just there to say, okay, what do you need from me and how can I help you? Uh, and, and, or even saying, I know I'm supposed to be ready for something, but I'm not. Uh, would you like to reschedule this or can I be helpful to you? But the other side of that uh, has been building into my schedule planning time for very important meetings, like the one-on-one with your direct report, actually planning for that meeting so that it goes quicker and more smoothly and things like that. Um, that that's all come from my executive coach uh, and really helped me not make the same mistakes twice, but also sort of anticipate future situations and, and build better habits to be a leader. As we come to the end of the show, like final question that we always ask our guests is like, how do you keep your mental and physical well-being? That's a great question. I don't think I always do. I think I get uh, very emotionally uh, invested into the projects that I work on. And so I don't think I could safely say that I always keep um, my emotional well-being going. But I think a big part of it is stepping back um, and having a little context and examining it. Um, A lot of what I learned this year was when I find myself turning in circles um, I like, for example, I call it the Asana Gmail Slack circle of death, where you're just going between, I've got a lot to do. I have so much in my inbox. There's conversations going on Slack. Uh, if you're ever doing that and you've made one full lap, it means you're, you're completely, you've, you're, you're out of it. You're out of the loop. You're not focused. You don't know what you should be doing. You don't know what's important and what's not. Uh, and I've started to look for those triggers to step back and just say, okay, uh, what do I want to get done today? What do I want to get done this week? What do I want to get done this month? Uh, what commitments have I made to people? Um, what's important and what's not? And and the what's not is probably the most important part. Taking stuff off of my plate has been the most like the 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 most efficient way to get me back into a place where I think I can be highly effective because I've committed to something that I couldn't follow through with, and now it's sitting on the back of my mind, and I know I'm not going to do it, but I've already committed to it, and that person's expecting it from me. And just being able to step back and divide up those things and look at a plan going forward that you like. And if you can't see a plan going forward that you like and feel confident that you can execute on, I think that's you need to start there um, and, and step back. Liam, we'll, we'll end it on the, those sort of wise words uh, there. And uh, it's been fascinating to speak to you uh, as always. Hopefully we'll speak to, uh, to you and your, your team in person at Sastock in Dublin this October if, uh, if you guys are going to make it over. Yeah, thanks again, uh, Liam Bogart-Azale, for being a great guest on this episode of The Struggle. Thanks for having me, Alex. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Struggle with Liam Bogart-Azale. If you think you can be as honest and open as Liam or any of the other guests we've hosted on The Struggle, get in touch and send us your story of struggle on podcast at sastalk.com. We would love to have you on the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.